This is the podcast by The Straits Times. I'm Jonathan Roberts. In this special episode, we have Melvinder Pal Singh and Sita Nguyen, both former journalists with the new paper. In the wake of the September 11th attacks in 2001, they were each assigned to cover the situation in Afghanistan, which at the time had been sheltering the terrorist leader Osama bin Laden. Melvin went in late September, almost a week before US forces invaded with Operation Enduring Freedom, and Sito visited in December. We spoke to them over Zoom, Melvin joining us from Sydney, Australia, and Sito in Singapore to talk about their experiences. Melvin, Sito, thank you for joining me. The first question is possibly the most obvious. What do you recall of 9-11? I was actually home when uh, I caught the news on TV. And then I got a call from the night editor, then Mahfoud Simon, who has unfortunately passed on. And uh, he said, you know, return to the office. You've been activated. And... In all honesty, you know, we worked through the night. We were then an afternoon paper, so we went to print in the morning. And uh, because, in a sense, we had that advantage, we had, you know, pictures, videos, and more information pouring in from the U.S. When it became clear that, that you know, one, you know, what would have been an accident uh, turned out to actually be a planned attack when two towers were hit. Everybody was just crowding around the TV. We had a TV in the newsroom. I think a senior editor walked past and I asked him, I said, hey, uh, what was that? He was like, oh, plane crash. And I think we didn't feel how serious it was until um, the second plane hit. Because when the second plane hit, everybody was watching it live and everybody in front of the TV just suddenly took a huge step back. That actually started us on a mission which saw you know, uh, us going to Peshawar, which is the border town between Pakistan and Afghanistan, into Afghanistan, and then organizing a trip later in the year, in December, for Sito and Muhammad Ishaq, who has since retired, to go all the way to Kabul. Before the attacks, you had both reported on terrorism in the region. In fact, the new paper had run an article on Osama bin Laden's influence just two days before the attacks. Because we've been writing and tracking stories uh, around 98 came a series of uh, incidents in Malaysia involving a group known as the Kumpolan uh, Mujahideen Malaysia. And um, became a pattern started to form that, you know, there was some connection between the group in Malaysia, the groups in Indonesia, the groups in the Philippines, which was the Moro Islamic Liberation Front, and also, you know, um, in, in, in Thailand, possibly. And uh, then, you know, uh, Senior Minister, Founding Prime Minister Lee Kuan Yew uh, said that, you know, uh, the, the, the basic common denominator is Afghan- Afghanistan, that some of them had uh, gone there as Mujahideens uh, during the Soviet occupation, and at the same time, um, you know, after the Soviets left, the camps were still there and they'd gone there for training. So we ran that story asking the question, could someone like Osama bin Laden unite this, you know, seemingly disparate groups in the region? And by and large, the experts said no. When the 9-11 attacks happened, it became very clear there were connections, not just 
to Indonesia, to Philippines, etc., but also to Singapore. You see, before that, you know, when we did that article, um, we never really realized the impact that it could have. You know, the fact that because um, you see, when you think of Afghanistan, when you think about the Soviet war, you think about the war there. It's it's very remote. You know, what do we know of it? We watch movies, we watch Rambo. You know, we we we. It's 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 so remote. It's when you realize that there is a local connection, the fact that they they plotted in KL, which is you know our neighbor. Um, I think that's when you realize, wow, um, it's actually closer to us than we think. Um, and I think that that was the thing that made me realize, okay, you know, um, it's not just about it being over there; it's actually closer to home. It's it's not just terrorism um, in the Middle East in in the US. It's terrorism in the world, and um, you know, we're part of it as well. So, Melvin, how did you end up in Afghanistan a week before the U.S. invasion? The editor of the day was Ivan Fernandez, and he wanted me to go to New York, but I didn't see the point in going to New York. Everyone was there, you know, and it would be well covered. I thought, you know, the story was really in Afghanistan, you know, and uh, I said, you know, we should go there, and uh, we did. But what was meant to have been, you know, a journey that should have taken us, you know, a maximum of say six hours ended up taking 21 hours because though the Americans had not started the uh, Operation Enduring Freedom which was launched in uh, September, October 7 uh, we left around uh, September 28 thereabouts it took us 21 hours to get to Peshawar because we had to fly to Dubai and then we had to fly to Karachi and then Quetta we were flying all over the place because the airspace was being closed because the American planes were actually flying over Afghanistan at the point. Yeah, we were there. We arrived pretty early. We actually managed to get hotel rooms and all. Uh, and, you know, in large part because we arrived very early. And uh, But the, the, the you know, the, the, the challenge then was getting to, you know, the capital of Afghanistan, Kabul, because when we tried, you know, during, you know, the, the end of the second week of our time there, it was almost impossible because, you know, the sorties were, you know, they were already flying, the sorties, bombs were being dropped all over the place and nobody would take us to Kabul. Sito, you were a young journalist at the time, I think just 25. Uh, what were your first thoughts when you were assigned to go to Afghanistan? Um, well, I was a bit apprehensive. I think for me, it was more, um, you see, a lot of the places that I've been to, um, particularly Malaysia or Indonesia, uh, I knew the language. I think this was probably one of the first few times I'd be going where I totally do not know the language. And I think knowing the language is a big part um, because you can sense when something is wrong, you can sense when um, things are tense, which you can't do when um, you have no idea what's going on. So you then have to rely on an interpreter. You have to rely on a guide, on a fixer. Um, so it's out of your hands. Yeah. Um, I didn't think of the danger at that point. I think I wasn't really processing that part yet. Um, I did call my parents. Like, oh, just so you know, <laughs> um, I'm doing this. Um, I think it was also the logistics, thinking about how we were going to get there. I think that was the thing that 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 occupied my mind more, how we were going to get there, how we we're going to get around. Uh, I'd never been to that part of the world before. So there's no familiarity with how things work. Um, of course, um, you know, 
yeah, I think it's probably my first time in a, in an active war zone, so to speak. Yeah. So there was a lot of apprehension, but also some anticipation, you know, some excitement, I guess. And what stories did you both want to bring back from your respective assignments? The way the new paper has covered conflicts and, you know, we've been to all over Indonesia, Aceh, East Timor, West Timor, we've been to Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, etc. We always told the human interest stories, the people story, you know, and, and, and war, conflict, etc. You know, the victims were often the women and the children. And our stories largely focused on the women and the children. You know, one of the things that became interesting was how the Taliban refused to give up Osama bin Laden and they were punished because they refused to. But the Taliban are Pashtuns and the Pashtuns have a code. It's called the Pashtun Wali. And that code, you know, includes things like, you know, if someone, you know, asks that you look after them, you must, you know, because they are your guests. And, you know, there are codes of loyalty, bravery, etc. It's all part of the Pashtun code. And um, we wanted to understand that, how it was forged, uh, if anti-Western rhetoric was forged in, you know, their daily lives. And as it turned out, in our visit to the refugee camps and all that became very clear because many of the Afghans who left during the Soviet occupation uh, weren't living with the rest of the Pakistanis. They were living in refugee camps, you know, mud wall homes and all. And that's where they had their education in these madrasas, which was generally, you know, started up and funded by a a religious group, religious political group, which was very pro-Taliban and very, you know, anti-liberal, aka anti-Western ideals. And uh, it was really from these camps that the Taliban was born. Okay, well, the first, the main mission really was to try to get in touch with this Singaporean guy because he was reportedly held in a jail in Kabul and he was said to be a Singaporean who had gone there to fight for Al-Qaeda and that he apparently had been had been trained and he claimed to have, I think, um, trained under Osama. Um, so the main, the main mission was to, to talk to him. But I think it was also to build an idea of what is Afghanistan? What are the people like? Um, and I think for me, going as a woman, it was also what are the women like? Because a lot of the, the, the reports focus on women's rights in Afghanistan. You know? But what is it really like? What do women really want? What do women really feel? Um, you know, what do they really feel about the war, about their lives? So for both of you, what were your first impressions of Afghanistan? And given the situation, how much danger did you feel that you were in? The danger sometimes is not visible. And that became apparent, right? When, when you know, sadly a Wall Street Journal journalist was kidnapped and subsequently killed. And uh, four journalists who attempted the road trip from Peshawar to Kabul were similarly killed. I mean, the danger is not overt, but you get told by everyone that this is a cowboy town, this is a rough area. There are elements of, you know, security forces that have split loyalties. There are elements of, you know, uh, religious fundamentalists, religious extremists, uh, Islamic militants. And uh, it didn't help that uh, as a Singh, uh, you know, as an Indian with a Singh, 
I was often, you know, a couple of times when Ishak and I went into the refugee camps, we were arrested. And I was immediately accused of being an Indian spy. You know, so, <laughs> you know, the danger is not overt. I mean, it's not like you're wearing a bulletproof vest, you know. And, you know, you're often clueless, but you have no idea where it's going to come from. But we knew that it was a rough and tough area. Um, see, when I got there, um, it was peak time for journalists. It was flooded with journalists because everybody, everybody was there. Um, the wires, every country was there, every nationality was there. So it was kind of like everybody was hustling. Everybody was looking for a job. Everybody was peddling something. It almost felt like you had landed in some bizarre way, like a beach resort where everybody's trying to sell you something. So a guy who normally sells caps is suddenly selling you his car because he wants to drive you, take you on a, on a, on a ride, uh, I mean, you know, ferry you somewhere for a fee. You know, everybody was trying to make, I think, I think that's what um, happens in a place like that when, you are, when there's so much poverty, everybody tries to, 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 to make the best of the situation. And I was taken aback by that because it was actually quite bustling in that sense. You know, there was like an active journal tourism thing going on. Um, you know, people were saying, uh, oh, okay, you know, uh, do you want, do you want a, a two-night stay? Do you want a three-night stay? Um, you know, uh, do you want to take in this while you're there? We're going to throw in a meal for free. You know, it, it, that part, I think, struck me. Um, but at the same time, there was also a certain sense of weariness. Um, like, I think there was also some confusion among the locals as to um, they didn't know what to make of the situation. Um, I mean, they've had foreigners come in before. They've had the Soviets before. They didn't like them, um, you know, but with the Americans there, I think they weren't sure. Was it going to be the same thing again? Um, should we trust them? So there's a certain awareness to all foreigners. Like, um, I, I hope to get along with you. I hope to make some money off you, but I'm actually a little bit wary of you. What do you want? Why are you doing here? How long are you going to stay here? Danger, okay, the danger I was actually in, I, I probably wouldn't know because thankfully nothing happened. In terms of, see, the thing is, a lot of it is, uh, there's a lot of tension. You, you sometimes feel a lot of tension simmering. Um, like, for example, we're at the checkpoint, and then our guide speaks to the, the border guard, and then some words are exchanged. Tempers flare very easily over there. And again, because you don't know what's going on, you don't understand the language, what seems like a conversation seems like an argument to you because it's, it's so heightened, you know, and then your, your, own, your own senses are heightened. So, um, of course, and of course, everybody's carrying guns, you know. So I think that to me was this was the, the scary part. Just watching and seeing, is this is this getting is this getting out of hand? Should we pull back? Should we say, okay, never mind, we won't we won't pass through here. We will we will back off. I think it's knowing when to confront and when to not. Speaking of confrontations, Melvin, one photo of you was captioned: "The man Melvin Singh is arguing with was armed with an AK-47." Care to expand on that particular incident? Yeah, I, 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 I'm somewhere between naive and stupid. Uh, I think more stupid. So uh, Ishak and I had a deal that, you know, we had to tell the story no matter what. And uh, we would continue taking pictures and videos or what have you. And that picture, you, you will see that I'm actually holding a video camera in my left hand. I had a good look at the picture. So what happened? Ishak captioned the picture. What happened was, you know, I dressed, you know, in the local garb and uh, we tried to sneak our way into certain places, the tribal areas where tribal laws worked, you know, and, um, you know, you had AK-47s and, you know, these little huts 
and uh, grenades being sold out in the open, etc. And things we were not supposed to see. And we saw the things. And it became very obvious we were not supposed to be there. So we were threatened and we were told to leave, etc. But, you know, in a, a moment of folly or, or <laughs> you know, false bravado, I thought if I could intimidate the person more, it was less likely he would do anything to me. So, you know, the conversation went something like this. Uh, I am an Afghan, you know. Uh, and I said, so what? I'm a Singh, you know. And uh, didn't register with me at that point. And the driver later told me, uh, the, the guy who took us around, that was significant because about 20 kilometers from that place is an old fort, the Jamrut Fort, where around the 1800s, the Sikhs fought a bloody battle with the Afghans and uh, defeated the Afghans. And um, many fear the Afghans and the Afghans fear the Sikhs. And I don't know whether that had a part in it. <laughs> I honestly don't. Or the guy thought, you know, I was a special case who needed help. Sito, what were the challenges you were faced with as a female journalist in Afghanistan? Um, okay, two things. One was, first, of course, was a bit of frustration because there were several times when we had meetings with, um, in fact, there was one tribal leader that we met. And the minute we walked in, immediately he spoke to Isha. He just ignored me. Um, and until Isha had to say, no, no, I'm, I'm the one that's going to be asking the questions. And he didn't seem, he didn't seem very pleased, you know? So um, I, I, I got that a lot. I got that a lot. Like immediately if we entered anything, everybody would defer to Isha. I mean, you know, nothing wrong with that. I mean, Isha's a great guy to travel with, you know, but um, automatically I think they assumed that he was the journalist and I was the person helping him or his assistant. So I think it, it got a bit, it got frustrating sometimes, you know, um, but I think what helped was wearing the local gear, wearing the shawl, blending in, uh, looking the part. Um, the other flip side was this, um, which is the better side of it, was that there was a lot of curiosity because they, they, um, there are not many women on the streets. Okay. So it's a very male dominated society, at least on the streets, most women stay home. So when they see a face like mine, and a face of, um, they're used to seeing um, Caucasian women, but they're not used to seeing um, an Asian woman, or an East Asian woman, much less a Southeast Asian woman. So there's a lot of curiosity as well. So they, you'd have people coming up to us and ask, you know, and, 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 and initiate conversations and say, where are you from? You know, and we tell them, oh, Singapore. And they go, oh, you know. So it's, it's, it was a good conversation starter in that sense. Um, you had people approaching you. You, you, could, you, could, you could start. Um, they were a little bit, it kind of broke their guard down because they were quite wary already of foreigners. But when they see you, they're like, oh, okay, this is, a, this is someone we've never seen before. And you also traveled on what was classed as the world's most dangerous road. Okay, it was a very, it was about four hours, I think. Yeah, three, four hours. So it was a long journey. Uh, it was off-road terrain. So it was very bumpy. It was uh, not the most comfortable journey. And we were all crammed into a small car with no suspension. At that time, um, things were kind of in flux. So you had a lot of tribal warlords guarding different areas. So as you pass from one area to another, you're kind of, um, you can clear one area, but you don't know what's happening in the next area because it's under a different guy, under a different warlord. So I think there was, every time we passed a checkpoint, for me, it was always the checkpoints. Every time you pass a checkpoint, there's a certain sense of, 
are we going to get through? Are we going to be turned back? Are they going to get angry? Um, there was always that, that fear. I think for me, it was that every time we hit a checkpoint, a guard, you see a guard with a gun, you see a few guys with guns, it was always, okay, what's going to happen next? Um, that to me was when it, it felt scary. You've both spoken about the human interest stories you wanted to tell. Of the people you met in Afghanistan, who still stands out for you? Okay, there are two, two off the top of my head. Uh, one is this guy who was an uh, ex-Mujahideen fighter. And um, small guy, you know, tiny guy, maybe 1.6. Um, and he'd barely been fighting since he was 14. And when the uh, Soviets uh, invaded Afghanistan and um, his, most of his family was killed. So he's a small guy and, and he, he goes everywhere with his AK-47. And, but he turned out to be a really good cook. So he made, uh, he cooked for us in Jalalabad and it was quite hilarious because you've got this guy sitting there with his, uh, with his uh, AK-47 behind him while he's like you know, stirring stuff in a pot. And then when it comes time to peel the potatoes, he takes out this huge knife and starts peeling potatoes, you know? So it was kind of like almost <laughs> um, um, amusing, you know, to see, you know, and then when you talk to him, um, all, he, all he talks about is the war. All he talks about is how um, his family has died, how um, he talks about how um, there's a certain blaseness towards violence. He talks about how, oh, the other day um, he had a fight um, with his family. Uh, a few of them came over, um, killed his cousin. And then he went over the next day and shot two other guys over there. So, so it's like kind of like, oh, okay, you know, yeah. Oh, by the way, this happened, you know. And I remember we asked him, um, but this was in Jalalabad, and we asked him, um, hey, why don't you come with us to Kabul? Follow us there, you know, maybe um, be our bodyguard or something. And he said, oh, no, I can't, I can't go to Kabul because I killed too many people there. And um, I asked, I said, um, how many people have you killed? And he, he can't remember. He can't remember because he's been fighting all his life. He can't remember. Yeah. So it's kind of... Um, I mean, it's interesting, but it's also kind of sad that that's all he's known all his life. Um, so that's the guy. His name was uh, Warit Khan. That's right. Um, and then the other person I met that I was, uh, was interesting was this lady called uh, Sharifa. And um, she was about my age. In fact, she was my age, about 25. And um, she was secretly teaching um, other, other kids, uh, teenagers, English because she could speak English very well. And she was trying to get a job and she was telling me about how um, it was very hard for her to, to get a job because she's a, she's a woman. She can't even go out of the house without her younger brother accompanying her. Um, we had to meet secretly in her home without her father knowing. Um, her mother was there, but her mother refused to let us take photographs of her. So she, she the funny thing is I went there with all these questions to ask her and it ended up her asking me tons of questions because she was so fascinated about life beyond Afghanistan, life in Singapore, the fact that I could have a job, the fact that I could um, get married to whoever I wanted, the fact that I could go out with my friends. Um, I think that fascinated her. And it, I kind of felt sorry for her lot, you know, for her, for her, for, for her situation. Um, but at the same time, um, I don't know. She's just a survivor, you know, like they, they, they learn to make their way around. So she, she's, uh, she volunteers at a, at a hospital NGO. She still gives classes, even though she knows it'll put her in danger. So, yeah. So um, she was, yeah, the other person that really made a big impression on me. And I sometimes wonder what she's doing now. She'd be my age now. 
Uh, I wonder whether she's got kids, uh, whether she's happily married, yeah, whether she finally found a job. Uh, well, we, we interviewed a, a, a lady who was uh, of the Parsi ethnic group. And, uh, you know, she had a price on her head. And, uh, you know, a large part of the focus of the Western media was the stories about the subjugation of women. Yeah. And, uh, and that is true, you know. Uh, and, and we saw it, you know. Uh, you know, they wouldn't dare go without their burqa, you know. Um, but in all honesty, I think the stories, uh, the, the, the people that, you know, um, uh, really caught my attention were the, the kids we met at the madrasa in the refugee camps. Uh, one of them, I think, if I recall, he was about 25 years old. Um, and, you know, his name was uh, Fauzlula. And, and, and we met many young people like them, you know, in the 20s and all. I mean, you do the math, right? Uh, they would have been babies or maybe not even born, you know, when Soviet, the Soviet occupation, when the Soviet occupied Afghanistan. And yet, he saw it as his mission, as his duty to return to Afghanistan to fight as a Mujahideen against the new invaders, you know, and he's a Pashtun. And they all, you know, talked about this Pashtun Wali, you know, the, the, the code, and that it's an obligation. Now, that is not to say that the Pashtuns all get along. They all have different tribes. You know, you can have the, the Waziris and the, 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 the Afredis, and they can have conflicts that date hundreds of years. But upset a Pashtun and they all come together and you know they basically fight for the Pashtun pride so I think that surprised me totally so when you know we we as outsiders don't have an understanding of you know this this sense of what they call the gairat you know honor of the Pashtun tribe and uh, that 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 stood out for me and what part of your Afghanistan experience has left the deepest impression? I think for me, it was their blaseness towards violence. And I think that's the part that I, I find very jarring. You know, they talk about war and killing somebody or neighbor getting killed, cousin getting killed, father getting killed. They, they talk about it very, uh, in very matter of fact terms, you know, um, and uh, they don't show, they're very stoic people. They don't show much emotion, um, but by the way they talk, you know it affects them deeply. Yet at the same time, there's a certain resilience. There's a certain, okay, no matter what happens, we will get by. We'll make the best of the situation. So I think that's the thing that, that struck me. This, it's, a, it's, it's a world that's very far removed that I don't think a lot of people here can relate to. But, um, you know, it was interesting to get a look into that. Uh, everything that I saw that moved me a lot were really in the refugee camps. I mean, <laughs> these people, if you go back, you know, a couple of hundred of years, uh, these people were exploited by the British, you know, and, and, and you know, they've been kicked around like football, you know, by the British, later by the Soviets, and then, you know, subsequently by the Americans, you know, and, and 
I mean, their sense of what is home may not align with us. Their sense of culture may not align with us. And uh, it's, it's difficult for us to phantom uh, or understand or relate to. But this is their sense of what is home. You know, and for many of them, you know, imagine there's a camp, a very famous camp in uh, near Peshawar, where 100,000 people live and they had all fled the Soviet occupation. Now, the moment the Soviets left, they returned to Afghanistan. I mean, we look at it and we say, you know, they returned to their little dirt villages or whatever, very rude. But the reality is this is home to them. And we can't understand that, we can't relate to that, but that is home to them. And and that sense of that Pashtun pride and that sense of Afghanistan being their home. Um, I mean, if anything, we can develop empathy. So Melvin, did, did you see a change in attitude towards yourself and Ishak once the invasion started? No, not at all. I think, I, I think the fact that we were Asians and me in particular, South Asian, I think that helped. Um, you know, uh, we were seen as, you know, uh, I think the term they used was Melmas. We were guests. And uh, they accorded us uh, certain respect, uh, even if it was grudging respect. So the threat was really, honestly, never overt. And I'm not playing it down, but, you know, there, there was never a situation where I thought, oh dear, you know, this might be it. Uh, but it has to be contextualized against the place where you are, where the propensity for harm is greater. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, if you go to a place where there are guns and bullets and bombs, you know, the, the likelihood of and something untoward happening is going to be higher statistically. But targeted at us, I didn't get that sense at all. I can tell you, almost everyone we spoke to, uh, and, and okay, maybe I should limit it to the Pashtuns. They all wanted to go back to fight the Americans. You know, uh, whatever the age, we met a young boy during one of the street protests, about 10,000 had turned up to, 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 to protest, you know, the impending war. And uh, this kid was four years old and he was, we had a picture of him holding up a toy AK-47. His dad was ready to go. And he's not even an Afghan. They're Pakistanis, but they're Pashtuns. And for both of you, 20 years on, how has 9-11 and its aftermath affected your worldview? For me, it was more, it brought the world, it made the world smaller. Um, you know, you see, you know, growing up, you think of, like I said, all these places being so far away, you know, um, Afghanistan, US, you know, they, they, they're just there, you know, in this small little world in Singapore. You know, you don't think about what's out there. But I think 9-11 sort of brought the world closer. And it makes you think about these things more. It makes you think about what goes on in these countries more. Because it's closer to home now. It's, 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 there's an impact, you know. Uh, you, you find that, like, like I said, I think, uh, you know, terrorism is at your doorstep. So you think, what you think is far away, what you think is in the movie, it's not. It's actually closer to home than you, than you think. Mm. I think the, the one very clear thing is, you know, in terms of security, we are far more interconnected than we thought we were. And we still think, we, you know, some of us still think we are not interconnected at all. 
that's a threat there, that's a problem over there, it's not going to happen over here. On the contrary, uh, we realize uh, with the 9-11 attacks that we are far more interconnected than we believe. Um, my view, um, you know, I think it's very easy to go storming into a situation, but if you don't develop an understanding of the ground, it becomes a difficult situation. I, I'll illustrate that I keep making the point about the Pashtun pride and the tribes and the ethnic groups in Afghanistan and all. Here's how complicated it was. The Pashtuns were the Mujahideens. And, you know, there were others who were also from the other ethnic groups who were also Mujahideens who fought the Soviets. The Northern Alliance were the fellas who helped the Soviets. These were the Tajiks, the Uzbeks, etc. And then post 9-11, the Northern Alliance were the good guys who helped the Americans and the Pashtuns were the bad guys. And it's easy to you know, lump everyone together as the Afghans. But, you know, they see it as their country, but the Afghans don't see an Afghan people. They see a Pashtun, they see a Hazara, they see a Waziri, they see an Uzbek, but they don't see an Afghan per se. So, you know, that's a, a Western construct, uh, but less so over there. And uh, if you at least try to develop an understanding or at least some empathy, uh, you find that it's a lot easier for you to operate over there. So my worldview has changed in that I want to try to understand the whys uh, before I dash into any or rush into any judgment of any situation. Obviously, the situation in Afghanistan has built up over the past few months uh, with the Taliban gaining control again. Um, how do you view the current situation in Afghanistan? There, there are three elements here, if I can uh, put it uh, su as succinctly, as, as coherently as possible. Uh, one is, uh, you know, uh, within reason, leave them be. Um, the reality is uh, military might to impose change, not going to happen. Uh, the Taliban's uh, or the Pashtuns have a code that predate Islam. So what makes you think, you know, with a few guns, you'd be able to change the way they live their lives, leave them be, but within reason. And within reason is, you know, having the opportunity to have talks with the government so that you can ensure that there's no return to these camps where these foreign fighters can go and, you know, basically train and then bring back that trade craft to their home country to wage separatist conflicts or whatever conflicts in their home country. So that's one. Number two is for the people. I think we need to also accept the reality is there are many people in Afghanistan. Uh, one in three are Pashtuns. And, uh, you know, the population of around 40 million, uh, one in three are Pashtuns. You, in, you know, maybe the Taliban's return to power unopposed or largely unopposed because the Pashtuns unopposed them. But the rest maybe didn't uh, didn't like it so much. So, you know, we need to see how that can be worked out rather than try to impose, you know, this artificial coalition or rainbow coalition government that won't work because the majority are Pashtuns. 
you know. And thirdly, I think we need to stop looking at the refugee situation and the people's plight like a movie. You know, there's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end, job done. Which was the case when, you know, the Americans left uh, Afghanistan uh, after the Soviets, you know, uh, pulled out. What was it, 1989? Uh, the Afghans were left on their own. You know, they had to create their own schools. They had to survive in mud wall homes. Their homes were destroyed. You know, they had mines. One of the fellows we met, you know, lost a leg because he stepped on a mine, a Russian mine. You know, so the reality is it's a country that's devastated. You know, the people will continue to need help. So you still need to engage the people. You still need to engage the government. And you still need to accept that there are certain cultural norms that you have to work with not work against. See, the thing is, I, I think what I, I, I admire about them is they're very resilient. You know, I think that another war will come and then another war, and even after, after, after this, there will be more wars. There will be more infighting. There will be, it's never going to end, you know, in some ways. And, but at the same time, they are very resilient. They're very stoic. They're very, um, um, they're used to hard knocks, you know, and I think, um, years of this have um, have conditioned them to feel this way, to be this way. So I should think they they will survive. You know, uh, optimistically, I think they will survive. They, yeah, you know, just being so used to violence, being so um, conditioned to it, they are survivors. You know, they will survive. Yeah. So I actually think, um, as much as uh, um, I think things are pretty bad for them now. Um, I'm actually hopeful that they will they will be okay. You know, I do sometimes think about children because I met a lot of kids there, and um, there's this little boy that I met. Uh, he was maybe one. He would be well. He would be in his twenties now, you know. And I wonder, like, if he's still around, if he's there, um, has he gone back? Because he was in a refugee camp in Pakistan. And I always wonder did he manage to make it back home? His, his father was trying to get home to Jalalabad. And I always wondered if he managed to get home. Uh, there were these three other boys that we saw. They, they are about my kids' age, ages now. They were like 9, 12. And um, they were just living off the streets, you know. And I sometimes wonder that, you know, they would be, um, they would be in their 30s now. You know? how, how was life like for them? You know, did they, did they manage to find wives? Are they married? Do they have kids? You know, so I, I sometimes think back to the people I met there and just wonder what's happened to them. You know, and, and sadly enough, I sometimes wonder, are they still alive? Sito, Melvin, thank you very much for sharing your experiences of something that, unfortunately, feels both distant and yet all too present. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to a special podcast by The Straits Times, featuring Melvin Depal Singh and Sito Nguyen. I've been Jonathan Roberts. Don't forget to subscribe to the Straits Times podcast channel on your favorite audio apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. You can also email podcast at sbh.com.sg for inquiries or feedback. Thank you for listening. That was an SBH podcast by the Straits Times. Find us on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts, or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg.
You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at the Straits Times, the Business Times, and Money FM eighty nine point three.